In the gospel this morning, Jesus promises, I came so that they might have life and have it more abundantly. My friends, that assurance is the most superb and reassuring promise you will ever get this side of eternity. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. When all is well, and we are experiencing the blessings of happiness and good fortune, we readily accept this teaching. Coupled with good health, a normal, a normal and happy family, and a reasonably secure job, the earnest practice of the faith brings an authentic sense of gratitude and spurs us on to do greater devotion and generosity. But when faced with family or marital difficulties, job insecurity, chronic health problems, pain, we may be tempted to doubt this promise of Christ. How is it possible to live a life of abundance in Christ while enduring great sorrow or even deprivation? Most of us are tempted to lose faith under these circumstances, and the promise of life in abundance may seem to be a cruel hoax. An intelligible response is necessary. How are we to live in abundance in the midst of pain, suffering, or disappointment? When Saul, eventually he becomes St. Paul, but when Saul fell to the ground on the road to Damascus, he heard the voice of Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus reigns in heavenly glory. Yet the account clearly implies that Jesus himself suffers when his children, when his followers, when Christians are persecuted. St. Paul will develop this teaching, this theology, making it clear Jesus is not an absentee landlord. For as many of you as have been baptized in Christ, you have put on Christ. Think of that image. You have put on Christ. Christ continues to dwell among us in his church, in his mystical body. St. Peter nudges us even closer to reconciling suffering with an abundant life in Christ. In Christ, suffering is elevated by grace and takes on a new meaning. If you grew up in a very observant and traditional Catholic family, when something bad happened to you and you came home from school and were telling mother about it or grandmother about it or somebody about it, they would look at you and say, 
just offer it up. What? What? <laughs> what does that mean? If you are patient when you suffer for doing what is good, St. Peter tells us this is a grace before God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Hence, suffering members of the mystical body of Christ, the church, share in Christ's redemptive suffering. This helps us to understand St. Paul's rather startling declaration that he now rejoices in his suffering. Now, that's what he told the Christians at Colossae. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body the community, which is the church. When we suffer, when we offer it up, Christ suffers with us in his mystical body. And our suffering participates in the meaning given it by Christ on the cross. Our suffering in Christ mysteriously continues the work of the redemption of the world. Now, my friends, God the Father is not a cruel taskmaster. In the book of Wisdom, we read, God did not make death, and he does not delight in the death of the living. I want you to think about that for a minute. God did not make death. Death came in the story because Adam and Eve failed the test. Because Adam and Eve failed the test. Adam and Eve had been made by Almighty God to live for eternity in the blessed garden. They were given a couple of rules. Other than that, God looked at him and said, have at it. It's all yours. You'll live forever. Death comes into the story because we humans and the persons of Adam and Eve failed the test. We couldn't keep our hands off one piece of fruit. Remember the pain and anguish of Father Abraham later on in the book of Genesis as he brings his son Isaac up to the mount for sacrifice. When the angel of the Lord holds back the hand of Abraham, the Lord reveals that he does not delight in Abraham's anguish. He delights in Abraham's obedience. There's a big difference. God didn't send him up there just to put him through pain and suffering. God wanted to see if Abraham would be obedient. 
Nevertheless, Abraham's anguish validates and magnifies the strength of his obedience of faith. The more he grieved, the more he hated the task that had been set before him, God knew of his greater obedience. Isaac, the son, of course, is a figure of Christ the Son, the one who suffers. And Abraham is a model of God the Father. So it is reasonable to conclude that the Father does not delight in his Son's redemptive suffering on the cross, nor does the Father delight in our suffering. God doesn't look down from on high and say, you're going to have a bad day and it's going to be fun to watch. No. God doesn't work that way. The Father delights in our obedience, our obedience of His Son, an obedience that is not diminished by suffering and death itself. It's an obedience that lasts through the ages. The courage and suffering of Christ further witnesses to the supreme excellence of Jesus' obedience to the Father. The excellence of Jesus' obedience is magnified by his freedom. During Jesus' trial, he tells Pilate, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. How many know how many are in a, a legion? Back in the Roman Empire at that time, it was about 5,000 soldiers. Put at my disposal more than 12 times 5,000. For those non-math majors in the room, that's 60,000 angels to come as soldiers. But that would not have been obedient. Jesus immediately reveals the reason he has accepted the death sentence. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? The scriptures are fulfilled when Jesus willingly accepts his death in obedience for our redemption and our salvation. Somewhere, somebody very much smarter than I said, through one man's disobedience came death. But from a man's obedience came eternal life. There you have it, the juxtaposition between Adam and Jesus. From one man, his disobedience brought death, not God. And by one man's obedience came love and grace and forgiveness. You know, as we unpack this whole mystery of the crucifixion and the resurrection, you know, some churches give it one Sunday and then boom, we're off on a 
on another topic. Mm -mm, not the Catholic Church. We're going we're gonna to dig into this thing and we're going to dig into it some more. How do we understand this crucifixion and this resurrection? Jesus invites us into the mystery of his sacrificial love. Greater love than this no man hath, that a man lay down his life for his friends. We begin to sense the mystery of the greatness of such love in our own life experiences. Just yesterday, we heard of a horrible tragedy over here in Cleveland, Texas, where one man who didn't want to be told to not shoot his gun in the, in the front yard because we're trying to put the baby to sleep, decided to go over and basically wipe out a whole family. And when the smoke settled and the sheriff and the constable and the chief of police all arrived, what did they find? They found three women shot in the head but they had covered their little children with their bodies. Under extreme circumstances, good parents risk their lives for their children. And then there are countless accounts of soldiers, people who are police persons, firemen, firewomen, and others, first responders, who risk their lives not only for their comrades, not just their fellow brother in arms, but for complete strangers. Even in a hyper-secularized culture like our own, we still know how to celebrate the dignity of such selfless acts of love. But the love of Christ and, and life in His grace can be lost, so Jesus teaches if, that's an if, folks, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. Obedience and suffering that often comes with it demonstrates that courage, that conviction, and that clear conscience that sustains the joy of life with Christ. So I repeat, I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You know, the most significant command of all is given at the Last Supper by Jesus. And Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke the bread, gave it to them and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Our obedience with God's grace is rewarded, think about this for just a minute, is rewarded with the word, that's a big W word, again taking flesh, just like it did in the manger in Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. Our obedience with God's grace is rewarded with the word, again taking flesh, the Eucharist, Holy Communion. And as our Catholic Catechism teaches, it is the source and summit of our Christian life.
The Lord's life in abundance purifies and elevates all earthly delights and all sorrows as well. It is a life of courage, conviction, clear conscience, and communion with Him, with our very flesh sanctified by His most sacred body and His most precious blood. Some of you, uh, this may, may be a new way of thinking about all this. Some of you may uh, have just drifted into the church this morning for whatever reason. Well, I want to promise you it is never too late to begin to live his life of abundance. Never too late. We simply say, Lord Jesus, receive me. I believe in you. Forgive me. Let me walk in your way. It takes steadfast hope, but my friends, it brings true joy. Amen.